Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. Hi, I'm Chrissy Goldrick and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I'm talking to Greg Mortimer. Greg is one of Australia's best known and most highly respected mountaineers. In 1984, he became one of the first two Australians to summit Everest. He later conquered K2, the world's most dangerous mountain, as well as two of the highest peaks in Antarctica. He's a pioneer of Antarctic tourism, and he even has a groundbreaking new ship named in his honour. So it's my pleasure to be talking to Greg Mortimer today on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Greg Mortimer. In the first episode, we talked about Greg's experiences as one of Australia's top mountaineers. In this episode, Greg shares his journey as a pioneer of Antarctic tourism. You, you studied to be a geologist. Did that come as a result of your love of the rocks and the mountains or was it uh, the other way around or, or how did that come about? I think it was the other way around. I was, had, was already enamoured with going into the bush as a child before going to senior school and university. But that opened my eyes to sciences and geology and how the world worked. Um, and it's, you know, there's so many spectacular examples of raw geology in throughout Australia. You know, we see the bare bones of the earth and we the do. big geology, folds on the ground. We can sort of trace that ancient, ancient history in so many different marvelous. ways, in so many yeah, different marvelous. places. Yeah. yeah, we're very blessed. Mm. And you're, so you studied geology and that led you to work with the New Zealand Antarctic Division, is that right? Yeah. yeah and was that, were you working in New Zealand then? Or? No, I went to New Zealand, I migrated to New Zealand, in fact, right. to take a job with the government, with the New Zealand Antarctic Division, because... They uh, very wisely, I thought, employed people who were geologists, mountaineers. And that was like candy to a baby for me, uh, to be able to go to Antarctica uh, with both hats on as a climber and as a geologist and be let free to go and map and explore in the Dry Valleys, for example, or the Royal Society Range in the Ross Sea. It was, was, was heaven sent for me. And that was, were you sailing down to Antarctica from New Zealand, from Christchurch? Those, those times of flying. Yeah. So flying from Christchurch into Scott Base. Right. It was McMurdo Base. Yeah. Working out of Scott Base, which Ed Hillary had established, and uh, spending months at a time out in, in deep field looking at geological problems which were still unsolved at that stage. The basic mapping had not been done and uh, the structure and the connections of uh, Antarctica to Australia geologically were not fully understood. 
And you, as a result of being down there, and uh, would you spend a winter down there? Or I, I never spent a winter there. Uh, there were uh, I spent long periods, up to eight months there, mm-hmm. over a five-year period. Yeah, but never a winter. So you saw the mountains and you had a couple of those big peaks in your sights as a mountaineer as well. Tell us about your mountain climbing and you had a couple of firsts down there too. Part of one of those seasons in Antarctica was working on a joint New Zealand-Australian-West German program called Ganovex where we were mapping uh, the Gondwana connections between Antarctica and New Zealand and Australia in northern Victoria land. So it's the area straight below New Zealand in Antarctica Mm -hmm. on the Ross Sea edge. And there in the middle of that is a series of high mountains, the highest of which had never been climbed, called Mount Minto. And so I was introduced to Mount Minto and learnt... And it's a spectacular-looking big lump of a thing surrounded by other beautiful mountains. I learnt then that... It had been attempted a number of times, but never successfully climbed. So I had that one tucked away Mm -hmm. for future reference. And the end product of that was in um, the Australian bicentennial year, having an expedition to sail to Antarctica and try and climb Mount Minto. In a, in a small boat, hey? Was in it? the old Dick Smith Explorer. That's right, actually. and I think that was also an Australian Geographic Society supported Yes, it expedition. was, very importantly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very importantly. So not only were you mountain climbing and not only were you dealing with the Antarctic ice and that, that, that very inhospitable environment, you were also sailing a small boat through the Southern Oceans. Yes, now there's a story to that. Um, <laughs> we had planned the expedition to charter an icebreaker that was the initial plan, um, which, of course, would cost several million dollars. So the reality of the financials of it was that we ended up with a, uh, a 25-metre yacht, the old wonderful old Dick Smith Explorer, and that very much defined uh, an outrageous and ridiculous three-month expedition across the Southern Ocean and into the, into the mountains. I bet there were some interesting moments trying to get that yacht down there through those winds and those circumpolar currents. How, how, who was captain? Who was actually handling the yacht? Yes. Uh, okay. So there was eleven people on the expedition. There was um, a mixture of climbers and the the yacht crew. The captain of which was Don Richards, uh, who unfortunately died uh, a year ago. Right. A wonderful man who had been with David Lewis. Yeah, we know David and, Lewis. Um, to Antarctica in years gone by. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the old uh, Dick Smith Explorer, actually, amongst other things. And at that stage, Don was in his early 60s, way over the hill <laughs> <laughs> on first pass. Now, significantly younger, younger than I am yeah. now, <laughs> looking back over the shoulder. Put it, yes, it does. Put it in perspective, doesn't it? <laughs> and, and then the other key figure was Colin Putt, ah, of yes. course, who's another very important, um, incredible man, um, explorer of great importance to Australia, but little known, really, mm. as a shy uh, man of great intellect. Colin. So it was a, col- a very colourful band of people. Yeah. And... 
if we knew what would befall us on that expedition before we left home, we would never have left port. <laughs> it was the hallmark of that expedition was the number of ridiculous things that went wrong, um, somewhat because of our own stupidity and somewhat because of the vigours of the place. Mm. Yeah. But you did make it up We did to the make top of it. Mount Minto. We did climb Mount Minto. It was the yeah. first ascent thereof. Yeah. Um, and got home safely, somewhat battered, weary and more worldly wise. Yeah, but it didn't, about... didn't stop you going back, Greg. You went back again to, to, to climb another peak. Uh, yes, not long after that I went to Vincent Massif, which is the highest mountain in Antarctica. It's in the middle of Antarctica and several hundred miles from the North Pole, uh, South Pole. And uh, that was with two other guys... Colin Monteith, very uh, Australian-born, very famous New Zealand mountaineer and photographer, mm-hmm. and a guy called Mike McDowell, who is well known to Australian Geographic. Yes, he is. Scurrilous character, who <laughs> at the time was starting a travel company to take people on cruises to Antarctica. Right. And that was my introduction to that world, mm-hmm. and and opened the door of a whole new unexpected world. Now, we're in sort of around the early 90s, aren't we, talking yes. about here? Yes, yeah. And so your next sort of big step in your life was, in fact, doing that yourself and was the, the beginnings of, uh, I think we would definitely refer to you as a pioneer of Antarctic tourism in Australia. Um, so tell me, how did this geolog- mountain climbing geologist end up in the travel business, um, taking people, obviously you'd been down there on this little ship, but you could see that there was a lot of interest in, in that part of the world. And I guess maybe driven by the idea that you could get people, ordinary people down there, uh, you, you set up a, a travel business to, the, to Antarctica. Tell us all about that. Yes, there's, an, there's an, a lot of steps involved in that process, but the Minto expedition was the first of those steps insofar as we... we uh, rented the, the old Dick Smith Explorer from the Oceanic Research Foundation, which David Lewis had established, and that was my entree to that world of renting ships, mm-hmm. chartering ships, mm-hmm. if you like. Mm-hmm. And that as a private expedition rather than a government-funded thing, it opened my eyes to the potential of private involvement in Antarctica. And then... Going to Vincent Massif with Mike McDowell was the next step in opening the doors because that was about the time that the Soviet Union was collapsing. May seemed like a left-field entree, but when the Soviet Union collapsed, all of their beautiful ice-strengthened ships had no business and they started looking towards Antarctica at the potential to, to find charter business. And Mike McDowell procured the use of one of those little Russian ships and asked me, after we'd been to Vincent Massif, to be the leader of his expeditions on those one of those little sh- that little ship. And so that was the, my introduction to the commercial side of Antarctica and Antarctic tourism. And that was pretty wild. You know, and Colin Monteith was there again. He and I were 
uh, on this little old Russian ship, taking groups of people who are obviously very adventurous mm. to South Georgia and the Antarctic Peninsula and the South Sandwich Islands. And none of us knew what we were doing. We were all making it up as we went along, and it was magnificent. And you, you sailed out of South America then? Sailing out of South America in that case, mm. yeah, and in the, the end of 1990. Right, yeah. and so tell me when you, I mean, if you go down to those places now, Ushuaia and the, the sort of jumping, stopping off points for Antarctica, there's some pretty big ships there, pretty luxurious ships going down to Antarctica. What was it like in the 90s there for? Was there me, were there many tourist ships going down at that stage? There were three. Three others, two, two others actually, the Lindblad, um, yeah, and and the World Discoverer, mm-hmm. and uh, Ushuaia, the town of Ushuaia in Tierra del Fuego at the bottom of South America was uh, a cowboy town, mm-hmm. little fishing village almost at mm-hmm. that stage. Mm-hmm. So it was quite maverick, the whole thing, mm-hmm. and and with that, very exciting. So even for those travellers to get there was a bit of an adventure already getting there. Yes, yeah, right? so they were they were adventurous people yeah. who were drawn to that. Yeah. By definition. And how did you know those people were there? Were there people that that you knew, or just that you that you you knew there was a market there for people to to go down there it, in, on these types of ships? In the first instance, it was Mike's Mike McDowell's um, friends' extended mm. group of people and a little marketing that he did yeah. at the time. Um, so not quite a haphazard, but, um, you know, a burgeoning new business. Yeah. And you, so these Russian ships, tell us about them. They're, um, a, a story in themselves really, aren't they? They are. Uh, bit of utilitarian, I guess. Yeah, they were, um, how can I best explain it? Look, we always had one of the crew members who was a KGB agent at the time. Right. So he kept an eye over on things. Yeah, that kind of sets the scene, if you like. Mm. And <laughs> Wonderful. he he would have the keys to the various cabins and was in control of the keys. Yeah, uh, a bit different from today. Mm. And yes, they were beautiful, beautifully built, but pretty rough old ships mm. in a way. Not not the creature comforts that we see in the sophisticated Antarctic vessels of today, mm. but. The real deal. Yeah. Um, a real adventure. So you uh, were providing exciting. a real polar adventure for just ordinary people. Yes. Now, no... I went into that not knowing what to expect of it and boots and all, and it seemed like an exciting prospect. And I saw, you know, what I saw was the impact of those places on people. Because they're so otherworldly and so wild and untrammeled and and you've got nothing really to compare to what it's like being in the polar regions. Mm. Or, I mean, any of the great wildernesses of the world, but particularly the polar regions. Deep, meaningful impact on people. Changed their view of the world. And, and I liked that. Mm. I really liked it. Mm. I liked the feeding off the energy that came from people's responses as their eyes were opened to, you know, the beauty of wild places. Yeah. It's a pretty, it's a very heady cocktail. Yeah. And, uh, and very gratifying, you know, to have an impact on people's thinking in that way just by showing them beautiful places. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and places that they've, they know that they're really on the frontier down there. Yes, that, yes, uh, indeed. 
They're sort of treading in the footsteps of Shackleton, I suppose, and Mawson and people like yeah, that. Yeah, not, not really that. not far beyond the, the great age of scientific exploration, of course, the, the golden age of exploration in the early 20th century, then the scientific age mm. soon after the Second World War, and then tourism came the along. Tourism, yeah. yeah. We'll be back with our conversation with Greg Mortimer after a quick break. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you'll receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all our products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. We're back with our conversation with Greg Mortimer. So your company was Aurora Expeditions. Yeah. I've, I have to say I'm very privileged to have been down to the Antarctic yeah. um, on one of your uh, Russian, on one of the Russian All ships. The and also to the Arctic as well. And I felt exactly the same, as you say. I mean, it really opened... I mean, I, I take photographs as well, so I mean, it's an absolute photographer's paradise to be able to go to those places. And You feel very privileged when you're there, but you do feel like you're on a real adventure and uh, you were doing something that most people never get to go. So it did have that sense of aura of privilege about it. Um, and um, apart from being great fun, but the people, it was just, attracts a certain type of people. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Now, that demographic has changed or widened in the intervening years. There's Now it's a very significant industry, worldwide Antarctic, polar tourism. Mm. And there are many, many vessels um, visiting Antarctica every summer, all shapes and sizes. Not too many little ships left. The average size of ships has got greater. And and some of them uh, don't have their people landing on Antarctica. They go and look from the ship and move on. Mm. Uh, so there's a wider range of, of styles of trips going on. But still, given that Antarctica's 1.7 times the size of Australia, there's a lot of room to move. And it's it's very exciting still. And I've been in Antarctica pretty well every summer since 1990. Wow. And, you know, three to five, six times every summer. And still I every single voyage, I don't know what the outcome is going to be really because the ice and the weather control. The dynamic the environment, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's marvellous. Yeah. So those old kind of utilitarian Russian ships have more or less been phased out now. Mm, there's only and, one of them left. Yeah. Um, and people are going down in much greater comfort, and I guess that's what you're saying, that's broadening out the demographic of mm. who's able to go down there. Do you think there's any chance that uh, it will go the way of many of the other tourist hotspots in the world and be loved to death in, in that way? What, what do you think are the challenges now for the Antarctic region? I think... You could say that it, right now we're at a point where we're not... The level of tourism isn't having an undue environmental impact. We're getting to a point of there being management problems, of 
there being enough ships that their movement needs to be managed so as to maintain the wilderness values of the place so that you don't see other ships mm. and don't get queued up yeah. at the, the best landing places, there's a management issue to be attended to. It looks like in the next five to ten years we're going to see a very significant growth in the number of ships. So we're about to enter a new phase. Luckily enough, and this is very particular, this is absolutely particular to Antarctica. Obviously, uh, there's no indigenous population there, so luckily, the early Antarctic tourism companies were adventurous-minded, outdoors people who was, they established a set of rules about behaviour in Antarctica for tourists. Mm. So the rules came before the people. Now, that's the only continent that that's ever happened. So we've got a good base in order to manage Antarctic tourism. Very great care is going to be needed in the next five to ten years, but we've got a fantastic platform in order to do that. And also, uh, there's an extraordinary level of cooperation between companies, between industry competitors in that they um, go, um, <laughs> they, <laughs> they, uh, they collaborate because of interest in looking after the place. Mm. And, and that's probably not, maybe not unique in, in world tourism, but it's certainly special. So we do have that opportunity really to take sort of the learnings, I suppose, of, of mass tourism from the past and apply it to this very sort of, I suppose, pristine part of the world and actually protect it. Uh, going forward and, and just make sure it's properly managed because of the input from people like yourselves who've been going there for many, many years. Yes, I think there's good cause to be optimistic. Yeah. Care is required, but mm. we can be optimistic. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And to, it leads me into the ship that is named after you. That is one of the new uh, generation of ships going down there, the mm -hmm. Greg Mortimer. How did you feel when you found out that they were going to name a ship I after can't you? tell you how weird that is. <laughs> I cannot begin to explain to you how very weird that is. Yes. It's a beautiful ship. Yeah. It's really clever. It's mm. strong. It's gorgeous, posh. Mm. Nice to be on. Yeah. Rides like a dream. Mm -hmm. Radical design with a bow that's like a submarine. So it's a wave-piercing bow, essentially, which makes very smooth. And that's, that's a game-changer. This is a new class of vessel. It's the first of its type in the world, and it's a game-changer for, for shipping. And you've been on it. You've been down there. Yeah, I was it? on the maiden voyages and yeah. so on. And, and that's only just recently happened, hasn't that it? That was a few months ago. Yeah. And yeah, so we we tested it out. We tried her out. Nice, superb. Yeah. But walking around this magnificent ship, where your name is everywhere on the walls, is <laughs> weird beyond conception. And I, th I know for someone as humble as you are, Greg, that must be a, a, a kind of a daunting experience. But I I hope that you get used to that. I mean, I have seen photographs of the ship. It is a very beautiful vessel and, uh, you know, it's a great way. I think it's great to think that um, Antarctic tourism is, is in good hands in the operators that are mm. going down mm. there and that these ships will bring a whole new kind of generation of people to an appreciation of that part of the world. Yeah, that's a good point. That's an important point, I think, Chrissy, because I think, in a sense, the more people that we can expose to the, the power of big wilderness... The, the better off we are. Mm. There's management required, yeah. caution required, but the more people that see it and feel it, then 
the more real we are. Yeah, <laughs> great. Well, look, Greg, you're a great advocate for that, for getting out of your comfort zone and going exploring these amazing places in the world and, and responsible risk-taking and all those things that we completely concur on here at Australian Geographic. So it's been a great pleasure to have you here on Talking Australia today. And, um, yeah, we thank you for coming in and making time to talk to our listeners. Yeah, we've talked a lot. It's a great honour. <laughs> thank you, Greg. Right, see ya. Okay. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Greg Mortimer. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com. Or find us on Instagram, at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners, including 10% of all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.